You're listening to the preaching ministry of First Baptist Church in Newton, North Carolina. By God's grace and for His glory, we're striving to be a community of disciples who are growing in trust, growing in love, and growing disciples. We pray you'll be encouraged to deeply love and trust our Savior Jesus Christ through this ministry. We hope you enjoy the sermon. church. Thankful to have an opportunity to open up God's Word with you today. If you are new to FBC, my name is Chris Cerrito. Uh, we are so glad that you are here uh, with us today. I'd like to invite everybody to open up their Bibles to Psalm chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can grab one from the pew in front of you so you can follow along. Psalm chapter 1. The book of Psalms is easy to find. Just open your Bible up halfway and go left. You're bound to find it. The Psalms, originally titled Praises, is the ancient hymnal of God's people. There are 150 Psalms in total, and the first Psalm we'll see today is a fitting introduction to all of them. So how does the Lord begin the Psalms? He begins by identifying the blessed from the wicked by how they live their life. Psalm 1 challenges our true motivations to live a righteous life, to read the Bible, and to even trust in the Lord's direction for our lives. The unbeliever hears Psalm 1, and and they may begin making a list of reasons why they should be considered the blessed. The merely religious hear Psalm 1 and begin to celebrate their morality as they look down upon the wicked. The genuine believer hears Psalm 1 and they worship the one and only living God who saves sinners and transforms their life more and more into the image of Christ. And so here's what I believe the Lord wants us to see from Psalm 1 as we consider it this morning. By contrasting the life of the blessed and the wicked, God reveals the genuineness of our salvation by how we live our life, by the fruit that is bore through Him in our life. And so before we read Psalm 1, let's pray for the Lord's help and mercy that we may understand. Behold His grace from His word. Father, you are a majestic God, holy, righteous, just, creator. You know the ends from the beginnings. You know us entirely, every part of us. You know our every thought, even before we speak it. You know our words and actions, whether they are done in public or in private. And Lord, you extend grace and mercy in lavish ways through Christ. And so we praise you, we praise you for your word, and we pray, Lord, we plead for your help as we read and consider your word that has been true for thousands of years and applies today just as much as it did when it was originally penned. Lord, give us grace and mercy 
today to understand, to be able to understand um, not only your word, but who we are before you. Father, offer grace to us that we may trust in you more deeply. We may turn from our sins and maybe even trust in Christ for the first time today. And so we bring you praise. We ask for your help, knowing that you hear us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So God's word shows us that there are two types of people in this world and only two types. You are either the blessed or you are the wicked. So let's see these from Psalm chapter 1. Follow along as I start reading in verse 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So let's see how the Lord describes both the blessed and the wicked, starting with the blessed. I want you to see first that the blessed are happy in the Lord. I have the remote. The blessed are happy in the Lord. Verse 1 reads, How blessed is the man. This person is not being praised or receiving blessing or reward for, for living a righteous life. The word blessed in this context means a multitude of happiness. Verse 1 could say, how completely happy is this man? And it's good for us to understand that this kind of happiness, godly happiness, is not merely superficial emotion. It, that's here one minute and it's gone the next. Instead, happiness in the Lord is wrought by the Holy Spirit, beginning with conversion and working through the believer's life to transform them more and more into the image of Christ. Twenty-five times in the Psalms alone, God's Word tells us about the blessed, the happy. I want to read just a few of them, and I want you to take note of what fuels their happiness. Chapter 2, verse 12, how blessed are all who take refuge in him. Chapter 32, verse 1, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Chapter 84, verse 12, O Lord of hosts, how blessed is the man who trusts in you. Chapter 119, verse 2, how blessed are those who observe his testimonies who seek him with all their heart. The blessed, by faith in Christ, are receivers of boundless, undeserving, overflowing grace and mercy from the Lord. And therefore, happiness in the Lord is an undeniable result. In fact, the Lord Jesus teaches us in John 15, verses 10 and 11, that he will make his joy complete in the lives of his followers. Now, the world system knows nothing of this kind of happiness. The best the world can offer us is a manufactured, 
synthetic happiness. You can have the perfect life, marriage, family, vacation, friends, and career on Instagram. Happiness can be increased as the likes increase, or so it may seem. Happiness, for some people, it seems just out of reach. Every time you get close to happiness, it moves away again. There always seems to be something or someone that stands in the way of your happiness. Maybe you've even said, I'll be happy when you fill in the blank. When my boss sees my potential at work, when my kids behave, when my health improves, or when I can finally get or do what I want. But godly happiness is very different from this mindset. Look how the Lord gives an account in verse 1 of the believer's happiness. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Notice how the happy Christian responds to wickedness and sin. First, they will not do what the wicked tell them to do. Second, they will not partake in sinful activities with others. And third, they will not keep scoffers as friends. The believer's happiness is marked not by worldly possessions or the praises from people, but instead an inward desire for righteousness. By faith, the blood-bought sinner has been freed from sin and has become a slave of righteousness. Romans 6, 18. You see, genuine happiness in the Lord is fulfilled in the abiding presence of Christ who has suffered, bled, and died to free you from slavery and sin. No longer should the Christian be satisfied with the Turkish delights of this world and of the flesh. They have been raised with Christ, resurrected with Him, and they've been given a new life full of new desires for righteousness. This is exactly what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 6. Blessed, happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. The blessed are happy in the Lord. Second, I want you to consider how the blessed delight in the Lord. Verse 1 describes the blessed by what they do not delight in, and blessed, uh, verse 2 describes the blessed by what they do delight in. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. Here is the first mention in the book of Psalms of the great and dreadful, inexpressible name of God, the Lord Jehovah. His name alone speaks of his holiness, of his self-existence, 
of his unchanging eternal character. It's the Lord Jehovah. When the Lord speaks, the blessed listen and obey. Because to delight in the law of the Lord means to delight in the Lord himself. It's helpful for us to understand that the law of the Lord in verse 2 is not referring just to the Ten Commandments, but to the completed revelation of God given to us in the Bible. Now, these are not just words on paper. God's Word restores the soul and makes wise the simple. Psalm 19, verse 7. It makes the heart rejoice and enlightens the eyes. Verse 8. It's more desirable than gold. Verse 10. Jesus says in John 5, verse 39, he says that all of the scriptures have been written about him, testifying about him. They bring grace and peace multiplied to the believers through the true knowledge of God and of Jesus, our Lord. 2 Peter verse 2, chapter 1, verse 2. And they also grant to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who has called us by his own glory and excellence. Verse 3. The scriptures, John says, have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. John 20, verse 31. So what does this mean? It means that if you want to be closer to Christ Jesus, get closer to his word and his work. The righteous life of the blessed only makes sense in light of their delight in the Lord, meditating on his word day and night. Now, this kind of meditating is not a meditating that is, that is like emptying of the mind, but instead anchoring our will into biblical truths. Christian, we must not be satisfied with vague ideas of who God is, what Christ has accomplished for his people, and the mission that he gives to his church. We must employ the intellectual and emotional capacities that God has given us to know him from his word, to read his Bible, to study the Bible, to pray the Bible, to sing the Bible, to prayerfully consider our life in light of the Bible, and teach others the glories of Christ from the Bible. May this be our hope and prayer. I shall run the way of your commandments, for you will enlarge my heart. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I shall observe it to the end. Give me understanding that I may observe your law and keep it with all my heart. Make me walk in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Turn away my eyes from looking at vanity and revive me in your ways. Establish your word to your servant as that which produces reverence for you. 
Psalm 119, verses 32 through 38. The blessed, as we see, delight in the Lord. See also how the blessed display the glory of God's grace in verse 3. This is beautiful. I hope you're following along in Psalm 1. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers. I'm sure you've heard the saying that a picture is worth a thousand words. This is one of them. In just one sentence, the Lord paints a picture of the life of a Christian and how it displays the glory of God's grace. The first illustration we see is God's glory to redeem sinners. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water. Well, if you've ever planted a tree, you know that trees don't transplant themselves. It takes work. On Psalm 1, the tree is the blessed man and the worker is the Lord. And transplants into the kingdom of God are costly. Romans chapter 5 verse 6 gives us an idea of what this looks like. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. There's a common misconception that says that Christ died for good people. Yet in Matthew chapter 9 verse 13, Jesus tells self-righteous Pharisees, for I did not come to call the righteous but sinners. You see, strong, independent, self-righteous people don't believe they need a Savior. Christ Jesus shed his blood for the helpless, for the ungodly, for sinners. This is glory that the God of the heavens, Jesus himself, would leave his throne and come to earth in the form and likeness of a man. He would walk in the filth of this world, tested in every way, yet not a single desire for unrighteousness. He lovingly obeyed his Father in every way as you and I are called to obey. And he did it with absolute perfection. And he willingly walked to the cross on the sinner's behalf to bear their judgment. And he suffered and bled and died a horrific death that our sin deserves. And he rose from the grave proving that his death has completely satisfied the judgment of God for our sin. And now Jesus Christ stands alive, willing, and able to raise dead sinners to life. I believe this is why the psalmist uses the picture of a transplanted tree into perfect growing conditions to help illustrate the life of a Christian because it clearly displays the life of the Christian before Christ and the life of the Christian after 
Christ that is radically different. If you're still not convinced, the Lord uses the same image to illustrate his coming salvation in Jeremiah 17, verses 5 through 8. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength and whose heart turns away from the Lord. For he will be like a bush in the desert and will not see when prosperity comes, but will live in stony wastes in the wilderness, a land of salt without inhabitation. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is the Lord. For he will be like a tree planted by the water that extends its roots by a stream and will not fear when the heat comes, but its leaves will be green and it will not be anxious in a year of drought, nor cease to yield fruit. Genuine salvation is more than just an internal decision. The Lord transplants his people into a new kingdom. For he, God the Father, rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, Colossians 1, 13 and 14. God's glory to redeem sinners is clearly visible to the world by a whole new way of life that the Christian displays. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. 2 Corinthians five seventeen. Maybe you are listening right now and you can identify more with the bush in the desert than the tree planted by the water. God's mercies are new every day. The Lord Jesus Christ stands with his hands reached out, preaching an age-old message. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The Christian's life displays the glory of God to redeem sinners. The second illustration we want to see from verse 3 to help us understand how the Christian's life displays God's glory to bear good fruit in his people. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in his season. Now the Christian's life may not produce abundant fruit every day of the year, but their life is marked by regular fruitfulness because that is exactly how the Lord has made them and empowered them to live. God has purposed his people to bring him glory. There is no instrument of God's that is left in the bottom of the toolbox. He is going to use his people to bring glory to Christ. The fruitfulness, fruitfulness 
is a distinguishing mark that separates the true believer from the false believer. We see this in John 15. Jesus says in verse 1, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. In a similar way, Jesus teaches that fruitfulness separates the true believer from the false believer by how they receive his word. In Matthew 13, 23, Jesus says, And the one on whom seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold and some sixty and some thirty. God's word goes into the heart of the believer and it bears a multitude of fruit. Now, I hope this is sounding a lot like the blessed in Psalm 1 that, they, that we just read of. The blessed that delight in the law of the Lord and meditate on it day and night. And the blessed that bear the fruit of righteousness. Notice also the last illustration in verse 3 that we see shows us how the Christian's life displays God's glory to prosper his people. Now, does the transplanted tree look good for a while and then wither away and die like they do in my backyard? They do not. Look at verse 3. God plants the tree, he bears fruit on the tree, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. Doesn't that sound good? God the Father grafts his people into the vine of Christ and drawing from his life-giving sap, they bear fruit in a multitude of ways and prosper in him. What can the believer do that aligns with God's will, that he doesn't prosper in some way in God's economy. Now, prosperity preachers love verses like this, but I want us to understand a biblical perspective of prospering in Christ. And this is going to be quick, so hold on. Jesus teaches us in John 14, 23, that he prospers the believer's loving obedience. Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. Now, the Christian may not have one tangible material evidence of prospering, but they have the entire Trinity coming to make their abode with them. This is prospering. God also prospers the believer who leaves his family for the sake of the kingdom. Luke eighteen twenty nine, And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house, or wife, or brothers, or parents, or children, for the sake of the kingdom, who will not receive many times as much at this time, and in the age to come, eternal life. Following Christ will often take us out of the comfort, the enjoyment, and the security of our home, our family, 
or the normal routines of life, yet there is great reward in this lifetime and in the life to come. The Apostle Paul also teaches us in 1 Timothy 4.8 that God prospers the believer's pursuit of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. No pain, no gain. The Christian's desire for godliness by faith will be prospered by the Lord. God also prospers the believer's service in the local church. 2 Corinthians 5.10 For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. The Lord even prospers the believer's death. Romans 8.38 The finality of life. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so it makes sense that the happy Christian delights in the Lord, that he delights in righteousness as he displays God's glorious grace. But on the other hand, it also makes sense why it's hard for Christians to understand and realize that God's economy is vastly different from the world's. We have such luxury in our culture. We have such privilege that seeking comfort and pleasure seems normal. Yet the work of the gospel calls us to expend ourselves for the glory of Christ. We also have a myriad of options to entertain us. Yet the work of the gospel calls us to reorient the perspective and priority of our life. The Lord has entrusted the gospel to his servants. And one day, he's going to ask us what we did with it. I so want us to hear, with the right understanding of the prosperity of God in Christ, I so want us to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. This is the life of the blessed, to exalt Christ and bring glory to him in all that we do. But notice in Psalm 1 that there is another group of people with a completely different story and a completely different eternal destination. Let me introduce you to the wicked. Verse 4. The wicked are not so. But they are like chaff, which the wind drives away. 
Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. This is a stunning and frightening transition. The wicked are not so. Why does the Lord spend so many words to describe the blessed and so few on the wicked? The Lord is directing us to godliness by positively describing the blessed life in Him. Often, we tend to describe godliness in another way, as a negative of the wicked. It sounds something like, I'm good because I'm not bad like you fill in the blank. The Lord simply says, the wicked are not like the blessed. Yet with only three words, the Lord says so much, they are not happy in the Lord. They do not delight in Him or His Word, nor do they display the glory of His grace in Christ. The Lord mentions not one redeemable quality. This is so sad. The wicked... In the end, as it seems, are worthless. Look at verse 4. They're like chaff, which the wind drives away. Chaff is the husk that surrounds a kernel of wheat. It's similar to a popcorn hull that gets stuck in your teeth. Chaff, it has zero nutritional value and is much like the tasteless salt that Jesus speaks of in Matthew 5:13 You are the salt of the earth but if the salt has become tasteless how can it be made salty again It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men Now the the worthless chaff much like the tasteless salt may bear some religious semblance of a Christian, but their lives are worlds apart in the Lord's eyes. This is why he spends so few words to explain the wicked, because God wants us to look at the life of the blessed for an understanding of what his people look like. Goodness is cherished. Righteousness is detailed And in the absence of this are the wicked. Now, the hearer must exercise caution here because fallen mankind naturally wants to create a middle ground here, a a third category of people, somewhere between the blessed and the wicked. The thinking goes something like this. My life doesn't look like the blessed, but I'm way better than the wicked And you can clearly see the argument here is based off at the very root. It's based off a measure of righteousness of their own life that they think they have instead of the completed righteousness of Christ clearly displayed for us in his life and in his death for the sacrifice of sinners. The wicked have a terrible end 
coming. Look at verse 5. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. The horror that awaits the wicked is unimaginable to them. At the judgment, there is no defense that they can make before God that will plead their case. Yet, they're absolutely convinced they will be pardoned. They can wear a $2,000 Armani suit, have a fresh haircut, a list of good deeds that they've performed for their entire life, and a list of people that they believe that they are better than as their defense of righteousness. But in the end, they will still hear Jesus say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. The last part of verse 5 is the sinner's double doom. The wicked are condemned at the judgment and they're separated from the assembly of the righteous. C.H. Spurgeon says that every church has a devil in it. But verse 5 reminds us that there will be a day in, in heaven when the bride of Christ, the church, will be absolutely pure, unstained. The Lord knows who are His. Look at verse 6. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. The Christian has eternal perspective, love for the church, spiritual care for their family, and a love for the lost. And everything that we see about the blessed is made possible by the Lord. He has an active understanding of our life, an active knowledge of His people, and He's working to direct the steps of the righteous to bring Him glory. This this is the only way the Christian can make sense of their walking and their standing and their sitting. All glory to Christ. And by implication of God's complete knowledge of the Christian's life, God's Word confirms in the second part of verse 6 that the way of the wicked will perish. Notice the finality here. The wicked are left in darkness. No sustenance, no support, no presence of God or His people, even their path is burned up. The wicked, choosing to be their own God, steering the course of their life wherever they will, are sadly left to their own protection and care. Psalm 1 is a terrifying yet gracious call from God for the wicked to place their trust in Christ and turn from their sins. Psalm 1 is also a call to action for the church. There's no doubt that the church understands that God saves individuals but we often miss the Great Commission's call 
to partner in the process of reaching the lost and maturing each other into the fullness of Christ. Sinners will have no opportunity to believe in a Jesus they have never heard of. It must be proclaimed with words and actions by the church. Likewise, spiritually immature saints need more mature believers to lovingly teach them from God's Word. Thereby, the church is called to work with a united heart to fulfill the Great Commission in the power of the Great Commandment. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Just like we saw in the life of the blessed of Psalm 1, the Lord empowers and strengthens and equips his people, the church, for every work he calls them to. There is no one left without his help who is truly in Christ. And this is not only hope that in one day salvation will fully be realized in the believer's life when Christ returns, but that he is right now working in his people to build them up to bring glory to himself. We need the Lord's help. There is nothing that the Christian can do apart from the grace of God working in their life. He is faithful to help us. Let's pray for the Lord's help. Father, without your faithfulness, all of us who are truly in Christ know where we would be. Vastly separated from you, without an ounce of true worship to the risen Christ, without a single desire to speak of his glories, without even the slightest inclination to live righteousness out. We are thankful you are a faithful God. We are thankful for your promises. Uh, We know because of who you are, we know that they will come true. And if we've been in Christ for any amount of time, we know that you've already begun to make them come true. And so we praise you. We thank you for your word that guides us so clearly. We pray that you would build us up, Lord. Help us to see that we're weak and needy people in need of your glorious grace every day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks for tuning in to the First Baptist Newton podcast. If you want to learn more, check out our website at newtonfbc.org. We'll see you next time.